A medieval sculpture portrays a group of Jews engaged in obscene acts with a pig. Located on the facade of Martin Luther's church in Wittenberg, Germany, it is a repulsive reminder of one of the most glaring weaknesses of that great reformer. A man who accomplished uh, so many things uh, by God's grace and yet had some blind spots. In his book titled, On the Jews and Their Lies, Luther describes Jews as, quote, venomous beasts, vipers, disgusting scum, devils incarnate. It's pretty strong language. He called for their expulsion, he said, quote, in order not to expose ourselves to incurring divine wrath and eternal damnation from the Jews and their lies. Similar anti-Semitic statements show up among uh, some Christian leaders going all the way back to the second century. And sadly, some continue well into the 20th century as well. Anti-Semitism, though, in our day is not a pervasive problem among God's people. By God's grace, we have put that away from our, our legacy. Yet at the same time, traces seem to continue to affect the thinking of people today. One evidence of that, in our relationship with God, we are tempted to feel superior to lost people, and especially to unsaved Jews. Somehow we understand the the reality that we are saved by grace and we are unworthy of God's grace. At the same time, we somehow feel that maybe we are a little less unworthy than unsaved Jewish people are. That's, a, that's quite a calculation to come from. And Paul has already uh, revealed to us that that's not good thinking. Uh, that, that unworthy means unworthy. There are not degrees of unworthiness. In today's passage, Paul explains why such thinking is wrong and what we need to do about it. And as we already read this morning, it includes some consequences for failure. Consequences that could be the result of failing to give careful attention to God's word today, as well as failing to understand it correctly. But then third, also for failing to make the changes necessary in depending on God's grace. This passage hits a theme that we have seen often in Romans already, and that is that salvation depends on God's grace alone. 
But that requires, in this context, in this passage, a particular response. A response from God's people, a response from all people of humble faith. Humble trust in God. Paul is filling in some gaps in our understanding in these first few verses, 17 through 21, about how we, most of us, are in the category of Gentiles. How did we get included in God's plan for the Jewish people? He tells us how that has come about. And, and in so doing, emphasizes that the salvation of Gentiles, again, that's, that's most of us, the salvation of Gentiles depends on God's grace. It does not depend on us being even a little bit better than anybody else. Gentiles get saved because the Lord has offered his gift to us. Verse 17, this is a, a gracious offer to include Gentiles into his plan. Verse 17 says, if some of the branches were broken off, and that would mean Jewish people, Jewish branches from God's tree, the tree of God's people, if some of the branches were broken off and you Although a wild olive shoot, that's a fairly gentle reminder that we don't belong. That God's plan is focused primarily from the very beginning on the Jewish people. And so here are we as Gentiles, we are these shoots from a wild olive tree as opposed to the one that God has cultivated. You, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. You see, he has graciously included Gentiles. And relative to the history of mankind, he's done that relatively recently. It's only since the the beginning of the church that the door has been wide open for all Gentiles to turn to Christ and to take part in this plan of salvation that he had originally designed just for Jewish people, graciously including us. We have no natural claim. We have no link, uh, physical link, to the patriarchs and to all the promises that God gave to them. But God has graciously placed us right alongside the other branches in that tree that seem to represent Jewish believers, probably Jewish believers of all ages. These branches that we are associating with would include the likes of Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Joseph, Daniel. I mean, it's a long list of faithful Jewish believers. 
those are the branches as well as all current Jewish believers, and we get to be a part of that. That's the perspective that, uh, that Paul says it's important for us to understand. We are the outsiders being brought into an environment, to, a, to a, an abundance of blessing that we have no natural claim to. And that is why in verse 18, he sternly rebukes any boasting on our part. He's very blunt about this. He says, do not be arrogant toward the branches, toward the Jewish members of this tree. If you are, and and here Paul is acknowledging a reality, this is not just a slight possibility or even a likely issue. This is reality. The the whole idea that we are somehow better, God saw something a little bit more in us. Paul has already addressed back in chapter 9 a very common misconception among God's people, a theological misconception. And that is the assumption that God chose me because he knew I would believe. Well, that makes perfect sense to us, logically speaking. That's the difference as to why God chose some people and didn't choose others. He knew these people would believe. But you see how that's claiming, even if it's only a little bit, it's claiming some credit. It's claiming some difference. God saw two different individuals, and he picked this one because this one was a little better. He would believe. But Paul has told us that is an entire misconstruction of the truth. We get no such credit. Even the decision to trust Christ, the gift of faith, Scripture calls it, is just that, a gift of God's grace. It is not a distinguishing mark that deserves some credit. There is no credit. Salvation is entirely by God's grace. And that, you see, then, is why Paul can give this stern rebuke. Do not be arrogant. There's no basis for that. There is no legitimate claim to being a better person or even a better candidate for salvation. If you are, he says, if there's some trace of that still going on, circling in your brain, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. What root is he talking about here? Well, he, throughout this passage, is pursuing the imagery of a tree. And a tree has a base of roots that draw the nourishment from the soil and send it up to the branches. The branches depend on the root, the nourishment the root provides. What's the root then in this case? Where did this tree start? Well, it started with the Jewish 
patriarchs. Paul's point here is to emphasize the Jewishness of this root. This tree represents the people of God. And it started with his original chosen people. And that he has grafted you in, not because you're better, but grafted you in by his grace. We depend then, verse 18 tells us, we depend on that heritage. We depend on the promises that God originally gave to them. We depend on the scriptures that were written almost entirely by Jewish people. We depend on the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah that God has sent into this world. Paul is urging that we value this heritage, that we value the nourishment that comes to us through the connection that our grafting has made possible. This is all part of the gift that God has offered. Verse 19, Paul is not done. He pursues this thought even further. And he does so by using a literary technique that we've seen many times in Romans where he, he entered, enters a discourse with a hypothetical person, a person that, rep, that is representative of his readers. And he says, then you will say to me, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. You see, he, he's, he's thinking here, he hasn't yet disabused us of this idea that somehow we're a little better, because isn't that what that statement would say? Oh, these other natural branches were broken off so that I could have a place. Like, I must be special, right? Well, Paul says there is a truth there. They were broken off. You were grafted in. So far, we're good. But why? Is it because you're better? Or is there something else going on here? As verse 20 answers, that is true. They were broken off, and here's the rest of the story. They were broken off for their unbelief. Any Jewish person that is currently not part of God's people today is because they have not trusted Christ. They don't believe he's actually the Messiah. In that sense, they are not part of God's people. They, uh, for that reason, they're not part of God's people. Uh, As verse 20 goes on to explain, and you stand fast through faith. It is because you believe, but you don't believe because you're better. You believe because God has been gracious to you. God has included you. And now comes the correction. So do not become proud. You see, there's no basis for pride and faith. Faith 
grace. Out, Paul says. But fear. Pride, then, Paul expects, is more of our inherent response. That's what could come naturally. Now, it not, might not be glaring pride. It might not be a pride that you would ever vocalize. But because our God sees the heart, it's still a pride that needs to be uprooted, that needs to be replaced with a genuine fear, a fear that says, God is so gracious. Everything I have, everything I am is because of his grace extended to me, an unworthy recipient. I must focus on him. I must give him all the glory. I fear to disobey him. I fear to displease him. My goal is to please him in all that I do. Because God provides grace for the humble. That's, that's what's behind this urging to, to uh, do not be proud, but to fear. The same God that gives grace to the humble also withholds his grace from the haughty. Paul here is prohibiting high thoughts about ourselves. And here's the other reality that Paul wants to bring in to just kind of shake us up to how serious this is. Verse 21, excuse me, no, verse 20, yeah, it is verse 21. He says, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Paul seems to be establishing a link here between pride and unbelief. What can start as pride, even start as a, as a, as a almost a concealed pride in the heart, could become unbelief. We already have testimony of that in the history of the Jewish people. When Christ presented himself as the fulfillment of the, all the promises to send the Messiah. When Christ said, I'm the one. I have been sent by God. It was pride that kept the Jews from believing. Pride kept them from receiving Christ as their Savior. Pride and unbelief are connected. On that basis, Paul says, don't just look at this pride. Ah, that's not too bad. No, pride could lead to a fall, as Scripture warns us elsewhere. Now, of course, the concern this, this leaves us with is, is uh, well, wait a minute, I thought we had this promise of eternal security. Somebody trusts Christ as Savior, and therefore they are always saved, right? Isn't that a doctrine of Scripture? Of course it is. Scripture is clear about that. 
a true believer will not turn from Christ. Here's Paul's point here. A true believer will persevere in humble faith. Will not slip down into a pride that can ever lead to unbelief. Which means that if somebody has done just that, someone has let pride so grip the heart and build in the heart that it ultimately has led to unbelief. That person can't say, oh, but I trusted Christ as Savior one day back then. God's answer to that would be, no, I never knew you. This is quite a stark warning. He's actually going to say it again in slightly different words one more time in this passage. And there are a number of ways that theologians have tried to reconcile the warnings of Scripture to believers not to fall, as well as the assurances that that can't happen. I think, though, the best way to do that is that God intends us to take both of them seriously. Yes, the assurance of salvation is true, but the warnings are true as well. This is not a, an empty threat, uh, lest you also be broken off. It's not an empty threat in that someone who truly lets pride lead to unbelief is thereby showing he was never a true believer in the first place. The warnings are part of God's way of making sure that true believers always persevere. But we miss the value of the warning if we discount them to say, oh yeah, but that can never happen. Remember Paul used the word fear. We are to take the warning seriously. We are to fear that possibility. And that very fear will, will be useful in God's hands to help us persevere in humble faith. There's God's plan for his people. Now, Paul is uh, weaving some important truths together uh, throughout this passage. I want to pause just for a moment to uh, tell you about a 19th century theologian by the name of John Darby, who devised a new perspective on how to understand Scripture. Uh, Discerning that God's way of dealing with mankind changed over the course of human history, Uh, This man identified several distinct periods, or what he called dispensations. Now, although the concept is very helpful in Bible interpretation, Darby and other early developers of this system of thought pressed the idea of distinction so far as to say all these periods are completely distinct so that there's virtually no connection between them. In particular, that would say that we have 
God's people in the Old Testament, that's Israel, and we have God's people in the New Testament era, that's the church, and there's really no link there whatsoever. In our passage today, Paul is saying that's going too far. That's pressing distinctions beyond what Scripture says. Paul is here saying there is a connection between Israel and the church. Later, dispensationalists came to appreciate that point of connection and to realize that this tree in Romans 11 is representing all the people of God. It started exclusively with Jewish people, but now it includes Gentiles as well. Every Gentile that will trust Christ as Savior. The olive tree metaphor is emphasizing the unity of God's people. At the same time, God has distinct, a, a distinct dispensational role for Israel, for the church now, and for Israel again in the future. God's word is clear about that. Distinct dispensational roles, but an eternal unified feature. We all share the same Savior. We will all be a part of the same kingdom. God himself has portrayed the city of New Jerusalem as encompassing both through the foundations that are named for the 12 apostles, the gates of the city that are named for the 12 tribes of Israel. We're all going to be there together. Appreciate that unity. And Paul is here calling in this passage, not just to appreciate our heritage, but to appreciate the connection, appreciate the unity with believers of every age, including the Jewish ones. At the same time, this passage is a call for humble faith. A humble faith that says, I don't deserve God's grace, and I depend on God for everything. How would you express that? How would you go about getting victory over the pride and replacing that with a healthy reverential fear of God and letting it become a blossoming, humble faith? One way you can do that is through prayer. The very act of prayer demonstrates and, and it helps us to feel our dependence on God. But that can't just be at, the, at those moments of crisis. God, I need your help right now. Because the reality is we need God's help all the time. To make sure that every day, and I recommend early every day, you express your utter dependence upon God. God, I can't do anything right today. I can't please you in any endeavor unless you help me. That kind of prayer, ordering every new day, can help foster this humble faith in God. Now, God shows no partiality 
Salvation of Gentiles depends on God's grace. The next three verses tell us salvation of Israel depends on God's grace as well. Our previous passage last time told us Paul's praying for this. Paul was actively engaged in trying to uh, win more uh, Jews to Christ, and he held out this hope that someday this might even happen. Here he tells us that that would be dependent on God's grace as well. Verse 22, the Lord does respond to human choice. God chooses, but people have to choose as well. So verse 22, Paul puts the two uh, human options side by side. He says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Two separate aspects of God's dealing with people. Severity toward those who have fallen. To cut somebody off, to break off a branch. That's severe. God does that when that individual refuses to believe. He does so on the basis of unbelief. But God's kindness to you, that word kindness encompasses all the grace of God and all the benefits that come to us through that grace. God's kindness to you. But here's that reminder again that you must persevere in that humble faith. He says, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Whoa, Paul doesn't want to miss this, this call for fear. This call for an ongoing, persevering, humble faith. He wants us to, to read these words and say, Oh, God, please help me. I want to be faithful. I want to grow in this faith. How do you do that? Continue in his kindness. How do you do that? Through humble faith. Trust God. Depend upon him. And persevere. God's grace can help you do that. He does reject those who spurn his grace. He accepts those who trust him. And God will do that for the Jewish people as well. Paul tells us in 23 and 24, the Lord responds to Jewish faith as well as Gentile faith. And here he is holding out that possibility of Jewish salvation. He says in verse 23, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, that's a, a kind of a negative way of saying if they decide to trust Christ as Savior. If they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted back in. And we would think, really? A branch that has been broken off could be grafted back in again? That just, somehow that just doesn't seem like a very orderly path for God to follow. 
It's not a very natural thing. If you wanted that branch on there, you wouldn't break it off in the first place. But no, they, that individual made a choice. Broken off. But the important part of verse 23 is that last statement. For God is able to graft them in again. The salvation of Jews is possible, Paul proclaims. And it's possible on the basis of nothing less than the very power of God. God is able to do that. There is hope for Israel. God is able to save all Jews who will repent of sin, including the sin of unbelief. It's based on the power of God's grace. The salvation of Jews is possible. Paul has one more thing to add. The salvation of Jews is reasonable. And now he puts us back side by side with them. And says in verse 24, For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree. Remember, that was not a very likely proposition. And grafted contrary to nature. It's like Paul continues to remind us here with, with this truth that you don't belong. This was kind of an odd thing for him to include Gentiles. But here you are, by God's grace. Well, if God could do what is unnatural, unexpected, contrary to nature, could graft you into a cultivated olive tree, how much more? And here is Paul going back to his common argument from lesser to greater. If God can do that, Look what else he could do. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Saving a repentant Jew. Saving a repentant nation of Israel, Paul is arguing, is more expected Easier to understand. We, could, we shouldn't be viewing that possibility as just the end all of the demonstration of God's grace. Like that would be the greatest of all. Paul says, no, we actually ought to be kind of expecting it. This makes sense. If this turns out to be God's plan. We are left with, with, with just thinking, what a gracious God. Look what he can do. Shortly before his death, Martin Luther apparently repented of his hatred for the Jews because in his final sermon he ever preached, he said this, we want to treat them with Christian love 
and to pray for them so that they might become converted and would receive the Lord. You see, Luther went from a pride that distorted his thinking about God's Jewish people. But he went from that with a persevering faith to adopting God's perspective, a proper humility for him toward him, his own position, and coming in line with God's plan. God's plan is that all his people respond to God with a persevering, humble faith, a faith of gratitude, a, a, a faith of commitment, a faith of dependence upon God for all things. Humble faith will turn from sin. Humble faith will trust Christ as Savior. That could be where you are today. You are in sin, but if you would express to God your humble faith, I don't deserve this grace we're reading about, but I want that Savior. I turn from my sinfulness. I choose Christ. I believe him. And you can be today, you could be grafted into this tree of the people of God. Humble faith can do that. And at that point then, all God's people can th- grow and thrive and persevere in this full dependence on God's sustaining grace every day. But then in light of the emphasis of this passage, humble faith will do one more thing. It will appreciate God's Old Testament people, the chosen people, the Jews. Appreciate how God used them. Appreciate what God promised them. Love them. Pray for their salvation. Pray that God would save them soon. I'd like to urge you to ask the Lord to forgive you for even any traces of pride, an inherent pride, and grant you sufficient humility to see just how dependent you are at all times on God's grace. Ask God for a humble faith to walk with him. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we ask together for grace to love the people you love. Jews and Gentiles. Help us, Father, to appreciate that there is a sense of unity there for those that know Christ as Savior. Father, help us to strive for the salvation of of all people. 
Lord, we ask just as well for that humble faith that acknowledges our complete dependence upon you every day for all things. Lord, would you cleanse us from pride, keep us from unbelief. Help us, Father, to persevere in faith all the way to the end. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.